Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And what is the greatest childhood toy of all time? The greatest childhood toy of all time. Well, that's interesting. Um, maybe it could be your favorite childhood toy of all time. For example, like it. Okay. Well, I guess that's kind of an interesting story. So I'll start there. Oh, um, okay. When I was young, like three, four-ish. Well, I guess my brother was born when I was three. So four or five-ish. I had this little blue bucket with a yellow handle. And that was my favorite toy, apparently. Um, I don't know what I did with it. I imagine sandbox type stuff. I was going to be my question. Would you like just wandered with the bucket everywhere? Well, I did. Yeah, I did carry it around. Um, and I imagine I played in the sand with it or carried stuff in it sometimes. But Collected um, dirt and whatnot. Yeah. And then when my brother was little, he was like one or one or two. Um, we were walking in my parents' hometown. Um, and there's like a, a river that runs through it. So we were going over the bridge. And I guess my brother wanted to hold the bucket and I was like, no, I don't want him to. And then my, my parents were like, no, it'll be fine. Just let him hold it. And then he throws it in the river. <laughs> <laughs> he just, just sends it. Yeah. He throws it in the river. My favorite toy. I'm devastated. Um, Rest then, in peace. Blue bucket with yellow handle. Well, yeah. My, my papa, like he's whatever year he was such a, yeah, he was a great, great guy um he he drove like he drove down the river like with his fishing rod and tried to like see if he could like, like find it and snag it and yeah he never did and then he he got me like a like a big yellow pail or sorry big white pail um at some point to like replace it it was like it's not the same so um yeah it was it was fun and then but i didn't remember this apparently for like years like we're talking 10 12 15 years like no and you get reminded of it, and be like, oh, the bucket. Well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't even reminded of it. We were just driving. Cannington is their hometown, so we were driving, like, not. I think it was uh, like a footbridge that we were walking over, and then there's a road bridge that also goes over the. So we were driving over the road bridge. You can see the footbridge, and I was like, "Didn't you throw my bucket in that river <laughs> out of <laughs> nowhere?" Flashes back to you. You're like, yeah. oh, I've seen this place before. And my parents just look at each other like, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I still bring it up. Um, anyway, that was my favorite. I, I enjoy that story. Yeah, that was my favorite. Um, and there was, I guess, nothing that really, like, sol solidly took its place uh, after that. Um, so, yeah, that was my favorite. Uh, I don't think that would be the standard, though. I wouldn't say that's the best childhood toy. That was just the one that I uh, graft drafted to, grafted to, whatever. Um. I would like to think that my favorite childhood toy also could, I think it has potential to be the greatest childhood toy that ever has been and ever will be. Okay. And I would go as far to say that if you didn't buy your child, this toy, you could be border bordering on being irresponsible parents, in my opinion. All right. Now I'm probably the worst person to, you know, say that. It's like, well, what grounds do you have to stand on? Zero. I get that. But for me, my favorite childhood toy without question was Lego. Mm. And it's, to me, it's like within the last year I purchased a Lego set. So it's not completely, wow. I didn't purchase it. I got it for Christmas, but you know, I'm still, still dabbling with, with mm -hmm. Lego. 
And like I spent countless hours as a kid playing with Lego, like mm-hmm. and like days and weeks. Like one of my favorite things to do, and it's you can do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Like you can do anything. It seems so simple because, and especially now, I mean, they're building all these like really fancy and upscale blocks. But like when I was a kid and playing with it, it was just, there were a lot of standard pieces and that was it. And it was just use your imagination, use your creativity, try to solve a problem. You need a piece to do A, you need a piece to do B and you don't have something to do C. So you make your own piece out of the other pieces you already have. And it does that other thing. And then you're like, yeah, now I can put it here and make it work. And Mm. you have the, whatever it is you're building in front of you and you're trying to make sense of it. And then you, you know, turn and twist it a different direction. And you're like, Oh, I, I can do this. And then you quickly have to scramble. You go into the buckets and buckets of Lego you have everywhere and start like digging through, trying to find certain pieces. And you're, it's, it's just a mix of everything. Uh-huh. And I think that's maybe something that might be getting lost in childhood toys today as they move more towards like the electronic and mm. digital side is like, you don't get that like right in front of you, three-dimensional, like problem solving creativity. There's just something about Lego. I just feel like it's, like I said, the thing that was fun for me was just the countless hours of just creating and innovating and Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, I I can't do this thing with it. Well, I'm going to find a way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use all the different like bits and pieces available that I have and try to work around it so that's why i also think it's like it's good for kids growing up and stuff like that because it it does i think it works on some of those like skills and abilities to problem solve and see things in different light and try to you know Mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome that's awesome i think you definitely could be right on that one um there's a couple things lego's not as affordable as it used to be like now i feel like it's a toy that's been like yeah upsold and like jammed on the price pretty good like because it was a super affordable toy for the most part mm. when i was growing up i don't know if it's still that way yeah i don't i mean i don't know i haven't purchased a lego set recently but uh yeah there's a couple things that come to mind one one i love the passion for sure um two and i still have all the lego by the way it's sitting it's all in my parents house Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. Mine is, I'm sure the pieces I've lost over the years, like under a couch or yeah, for you know, sure. been vacuumed up or something like that, but it's none of it. None of it's like been given away. It never will be. Yeah. No, I still got all my Legos too. Um, and uh, yeah. So one with the creativity piece, um, Bronwyn is reading a book right now uh, called brain rules for baby. Cause um yeah, we just had a baby, obviously. I don't know if that's been said on air. I think it has, maybe not. I feel like you said it, but yeah. I've also heard it so many times that yeah, whatever. Yeah, we had a baby. She's uh, almost two and a half months now. Um, but anyway, so this book is written by a neuroscientist type person, and it's like a culmination of all the research um, that's been done on child rearing and like how to make a smart baby, a healthy baby, happy baby, all that sort of stuff. Um, and the creativity piece is really important and having just that free play and like you do whatever you want kind of thing. Uh, and all the toys that are marketed really well now, they're really good at uh, convincing you that it's good for this developmental aspect or that developmental aspect. But 
um, in his experience with his own children and the research, like if you just give them room to be creative, he said like, just give them a cardboard box and markers and like, let them just do whatever they want. Yeah. Like maybe it's a space, like it could be a spaceship. It could be a time machine. It could be like, you know, hundreds Reminds of, me of that castles. Yeah, man. Imagination. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they're sitting in the box and Squibber's like, what's going on? Then he hears like the rocket ship noises outside. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah um so yeah and like legos i think are perfect for that and and what's nice about legos is that it it can be good for so many ages like you'd be hard pressed getting i think a 12 year old or a 13 year old or whatever to like play with a cardboard box um but you know there's definitely lego sets for for kids that are that old and like and you received a lego set recently for a gift and um i think I don't know, maybe like three or four years ago, I went through like a Lego kick again. Like I just went downstairs and I was like, we'll just pull out the boxes and see what we got. And, and yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I was going to ask you what your favorite thing to build. Like, do you build um, what the set is actually about? Or do you like combine all the different pieces and just build whatever you want? I, I really loved building like spaceships or like aircraft type stuff. I mean, you can probably guess what I like building the most. Um, yeah, you bet. Um, <laughs> my favorite set i ever got of all time was the the race car it was like the truck and it would carry the race it amazing but i think one of the things that you talked about that i really like about lego is it 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 can be very it it, it can be all of it it can be restrictive so you can buy the set it's designed to be whatever it is and you follow the instructions to a t Mm -hmm. so if you need some guidance if you need like an addition an an initial idea on how to use a certain piece or what it can be, what can be done with it. You follow the instructions to a T. So anytime I got a set, I obviously built it the way it was intended to be built, but they didn't always stay that way. Mm. And then of course you take it apart and you've taken other sets that you've built apart and then you decide I want to build a whatever, and then you put it together. But, but what I like is it gives you some initial guidance and instruction when you're building the set and following the steps mm-hmm. and it gives you like, like I said, sort of an introduction on this is how you can use the pieces. Mm-hmm. And then once you start doing it, it's like, no, I could do this with it. I could do that with it. So uh, I think it's all built in. If you have somebody who likes a little bit more structure, mm-hmm. they can follow the set as is and just build it. If you mm-hmm. want to be more creative, you can open it up and mm-hmm. allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And again, all of this, this is, none of this is founded on any sort of, you know, legit, I didn't read papers on this or I just, I loved Lego as a kid and I still really like it. Yeah. I mean, I think, and that's why to me, it was my favorite childhood toy, but I also think a case could be made that it's the greatest childhood toy of all time, potentially. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think I'll say it's the greatest, but I think it's definitely up there. Like it depends what you classify as a toy. Like. I think a cardboard box and markers or like a piece of paper and markers or whatever, like that could be. Cause it's just, it's just blank. So not you a bucket, can't, though. I'll tell you that. Well, it's not a bucket. It's not but a bucket. Like, that's not the greatest childhood toy of all time. No, it's not. It's definitely not. I can tell you that's for sure. Um, but like Legos there, there is a lot of freedom if you want it with Legos. But I think like just the fact that they like, they have to go together. There's only so many pieces, like it is restrictive in nature you know, to some extent versus like, if you have like a blank canvas 
or a blank piece of paper or just an empty cardboard box, like all those things, like you can, it's, there's no limits really, you know, that's a good point. So, but if like, I, I wouldn't say like paper isn't marketed as a child's toy versus whereas Lego is. So it depends on your definition. Um, hey, maybe that's that's the next step. You could be the paper guy who just markets it, and so that that's not a bad idea. <laughs> that could be a pretty good shtick to yeah. Anti anti paper cut paper, child safe, best kid toy ever. Super creative. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Well, honestly, I mean, I feel like we could just talk about Legos the entire episode, but we're we not could, going so to. We'll, I think the transition here, though, is part of me wonders if I enjoy one of my favorite parts of coaching is obviously the problem solving and the, the mm-hmm. exploration piece. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that might've been initially sort of discovered by me or what made me really enjoy that is Lego. Mm-hmm. And to me, there are some aspects of coaching in terms of like looking at somebody do something and then go, oh, okay, we need to like, something's, something's off. Like what change do we need to make and how am I going to structure the program and put it together in this this whole wild world of like all the ideas and the possibilities. And then you end up like creating something mm-hmm. for the athlete, for your team, things like that. So I think that's maybe how like coaching was something that really was, was fascinating mm-hmm. for me. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, I thought of it kind of in like a, a little bit of a different way. Like if you, if you look at like a one, one Lego piece, like this is how it's supposed to be used or this is how it's traditionally used, but like I can use it in this way and this way it has all these different applications. You know, I think the same way about different like modalities or techniques or exercises or whatever, you know, that we talk about, like it has, this is how it's traditionally used or maybe what it was intended for originally, but you can use it in all these different ways and help all these different types of people with it. And I think that's like the problem solving aspect that I really enjoy that creativity of like, how can we use different things or how can we modify this exercise to be like the best for you? you know, and that, that kind of stuff I find really, really interesting. Um, Which is not that dissimilar to sort of what we're going to talk about today, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I was going to say too, like, I feel like a lot of these episodes, especially the part threes are like, this is how you can use some of this stuff. Yeah. We've taken the Lego set apart and now we just have all the pieces and it's like, what can we build with it? What can we put together? Yeah, exactly exactly and then yeah that's what we're gonna kind of do today with the fascia system i guess it's just like what can you do what do we think you should do with it but like obviously you're the builder of your own program so do whatever you think try it out see what works see what's yeah i'm not going to tell people how to build their race cars with lego pieces mm-hmm. i'll build mine you build your like just yeah that's right i mean you don't even have to build a race car i would suggest you do you don't have to yeah or a spaceship spaceships are really fun <laughs> Do you put guns on your race cars? No, this isn't twisted metal. This is like okay. the, the race cars. Come on. I, I put guns in my spaceships. So uh, that's a little bit. A spaceship, I would. You don't know what you're going to encounter up there. <laughs> that's true. You got to be prepared. <laughs> that's true. Um, okay. So we wanted to get into trying to make these this a little bit more concrete. We left it off last, last time talking about like, well, fascia adapts to everything. So do you or do you not want to have a fascia-specific workout or fascia-specific exercises? Does that matter? Um, you had a point that you wanted to start off with. I think I was going to make the same point, but 
you go first and we'll see where we end up. <laughs> okay. I can, I'll, I'll, I'll dive into the letter first. So, I mean, is, yeah, because we were talking a little bit before off air about how like abstract and sort of like lacking direction this can have because Fascia does so many things and adapts to so many things that it also has all the directions. Yeah. So it's like, well, like, where do you start? Where do you finish it? It doesn't like, it doesn't fit nicely somewhere in terms of like, oh yeah, it goes on this shelf over here. It's like, well, it goes on all the shelves in every room in the house. And it's like, well, right. So it, it can be tough to kind of narrow, narrow down in it. And so as far as your point about like, do we need fascia specific exercises or do we need like fascial, fascial training and air quotations? I don't know if that's the case. And that's where I think it, at least for me, it helps bring some clarity in terms of how we can use it. So if I think about something like cardio training, and I apologize for using the C word on there, I'm going to use it a few more times and I'll never say it ever again. Well, maybe our next series is going to be cardio. So uh, we won't call it that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about cardio training, most people think, oh, I'm going to do cardio because they think heart, they think blood vessels, right? And I'm, I'm training my heart. I'm making adaptations in the blood vessels to help carry nutrients and move blood around the body. But whether you like it or not, there's also going to be changes potentially from a physiological aspect. And depending on the training time and the intervals and things like that, you may get some like muscle fiber shifts potentially, or change in mitochondrial density, even inter inter or intramuscular coordination changes. If you do all your cardio on the bike, you're going to develop and make more efficient movement patterns on the bike versus running or on an elliptical or something like that. So even though we've thought about, oh, that's cardio training, it, it potentially has all these other effects as well on the muscle. And that's no different than like muscle training or strength training, right? You get cardiovascular adaptations as a result of lifting because the vessels need to be thicker the heart changes how it will, will move blood because it's in a higher pressure, higher tension environment. So to me, is there such thing as like fascial training? No, not really, because almost everything you do is going to have an impact on the fascial system. But I think there's elements or considerations we can make to try to do our best to influence a specific change in the fascia that we're we're, we're looking for, whether it's, you know, creating movement in more planes or larger movements in more planes, or, you know, developing some of the elastic properties we need to transmit force and different things like that. So I think if somebody told me, oh, I have a special fascial training program, I'd be like, well, that doesn't exist. That's like a marketing gimmick. But I think there's things that we can do or elements we can change within what we're already doing as far as training plans to make, make more deliberate or hoping to make more deliberate changes in the fashion now that we have a bit of a better understanding how it works. So that's sort of where I would go. And that's where some of my ideas I think are definitely going to come from is subtle changes or things to include to help influence the fascial system. But I wouldn't say it's like, I would never describe this fascial training as an independent thing. If that yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we, we are on the same page with that. I, w- I was going to say like, yeah, fascia adapts to everything. Um, and in the same way that every other system adapts to everything, 
like you can do like hypertrophy training training we did a series on that like with the goal of hypertrophy but you're still going to get bone density changes you're still going to get you know muscular endurance changes you're still going to have like like your heart's still working you're still going to have cardio impacts um yeah and you're going to affect the fascia with that too obviously you know like you're going to affect everything and the nervous system and then there's ways that you can like so train the muscle a little bit more deliberately you can train the nervous system a little bit more deliberately um if you're weight bearing or training the bones more deliberately you know and then same kind of idea you can do that with all the energy systems all the structural systems in the body um so from that aspect to me like initially it did make a little bit of sense to have like because you you wouldn't say like oh the muscles do everything muscles are always being used so we don't need to train them specifically we can do whatever we want you know like you you do train them deliberately you know um in conjunction with other systems but i think it's how i'm thinking about it now is it needs to be in conjunction like you're training everything together and trying to have the specific adaptations on everything that you want you're not going to dedicate time specifically to the fascia. Like you're not going to say, this is my nervous system day. This is my muscle day. And this is my fascia day. Like you are trying to do your exercises in a way with a specific like tempo and load and coordination that you're hitting everything all together and, and then recovering and resting adequately to make sure it all adapts appropriately and things like that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think, yeah, like, it, it sort of sounds absurd that way where someone presented a plan and you go, this is our nervous system day. This is our cardiovascular day. This is our, this is our muscle day. This is our day where we train muscle. Like that sounds like some like Dwight Schrute gym for muscles type nonsense, right? Like it, it really does. We say, I'm going to go do muscle. If you told somebody I'm going to the gym to do muscle training, they would, <laughs> they, they would give you an odd look. 100% would. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, yeah, that highlights really nicely the idea that you're trying to work some of these elements into what's already happening. Because at the end of the day, whatever you're training them for, all those systems have to function together, mm-hmm. sort of like an orchestra. And the way that they're all I'm, different instruments, but they have to work together to get the end product to be what you want. Yeah. To be. The way that I'm thinking about it now, too, I, I feel like the fascia is maybe like the nervous system, I would say is probably the conductor of the orchestra, but I don't like the fascia. I feel like is the next thing that just connects everything because it does literally connect everything. Um, But it's, man, like, I don't know how to, it, I just feel like it's the most important thing that like it influences every aspect because it's so proprioceptive. So the nervous system is influenced so heavily by what the fascia feels it transmits force so efficiently that like it enhances everything that the muscle does. Um, and the elasticity element, like it, it takes metabolic load off of the cardiovascular system, you know, and it like, it wraps all the bones, it wraps all the joints. So it's like, it's everything, man. Like it, (laughs) It, it, it's almost like the, like if we're sticking with the orchestra thing, it's the, it's, it's the time or the, like the, the rhythm, like music is played in like a time signature. Mm, yeah. It keeps it. And all the instruments are playing to that time signature, even if they're like resting or making music or playing notes or whatever, they're all following that, that timing signature that the mood, the music is in mm. that maybe is the fascia, 
right? Because yeah. it, it, it it's interwoven in everything. Yeah. So, and that's what makes it such like we talked like we're trying to clarify some of this ambiguity and this like, where can it go? It it literally could go anywhere. Hmm. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Okay. So we got that. Did Did you have like another specific idea that you wanted to like get to? Well, or like, like I have an idea of how I would, cause I do think there's elements of my training right now that I, that I provide for people that take some of this into account. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's a piece. I would never describe it to somebody as like fascial training right. as we've, we've talked about, but there's definitely elements of this 3d and variable movement in different planes and in different space that I think needs to be present. And as we know, that's going to help keep tools in the toolbox, because if we move into these different spaces, if we reach, if we like reach down, reach up, reach across, you know, launch forward, do, do whatever we leave all those movement options available and we leave them, leave them open. So like, one of the ideas that I had around this was really nothing spectacular, but it's just where can you fit some of this 3D loading and variable movement into what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, like I have written here, like is fascial training just a buzzword? And I, I do think it is just a buzzword because if you use it in isolation, it's, it doesn't really give you a whole lot. So then after that, I'm going, well, do you, do you lift heavy or do you lift? Do you do resistance training? Okay, great. Do you move around? Do you run fast? Do you change direction? Do you do those different things? Okay. And now do you load in different spaces and in, in, in different planes of motion and some of this more submax loading? I get with heavy, heavy loading, we want to try to keep things a little bit more constrained from like a safety and an output standpoint. But if you're grabbing like a med ball or a cable or something lighter, are you moving in different directions? Are you either restoring or maintaining and leaving available all the different movements that you could do in different spaces? And I think if you're doing all those things, you're probably developing the fascial fascial system really well because you're touching on all those different things. So it's going to have the, the rigidity and the structure it needs for you to maintain whatever stability you need in high load, high resistance activities, because you're doing heavier strength training. It's going to have some of those passive and more elastic qualities. If you're running and cutting and changing direction and sprinting and jumping and doing more of these elastic things in nature. And then you're allowing that system. We talked about like the gliding and the, all those different things. If you're doing some of that submax cable, med ball band, whatever loading in different spaces, different planes moving around, then from a training standpoint, I don't know what more you can, you can do to put the fascial system in a good, in a good place outside of the other factors where, you know, sleep affects it and nutrition and hydration and things like that, but you don't impact that with the training. So to me, if you're doing those three things, the fascial system is probably in a good place. It's just, where do you, where do you implement that 3d and variable loading? And I think you need to find space for it, even if it's just a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the idea of where can you where can you implement it within your overall plan? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely agree with you. Like it's the key with it seems to be just like just variability. And I, I think that there is some room for more like specific variability and more general variability. Um, and I guess if we're talking about that idea specifically, like if you're doing like low threshold stuff, then I think that's perfect recovery day stuff that you're probably going to be doing anyway. Maybe it's a low threshold. You could do it anywhere basically because yeah. it shouldn't have a huge impact on like, Oh, I'm, my nervous system is fried today because I did this, you know, and then fall under the reach yesterday. And now I'm just, I'm destroyed. Probably not going to happen. Right. Um, and then if you're doing high threshold stuff, then, then you do that on your, on your high threshold days. You know, it's, it's simple as that. I, I think anyway, um, the, the key though, like we, we did talk a little bit about the, um, the collagen turnover, uh, timeframe and stuff. And so I, I did recheck on that. It only comes up once in the, in the Robert Schlieff book, um, that specific timeline, it is 48 hours degradations higher than synthesis. And then it flips and back to baseline at five days. Um, and I think that was specifically with resistance training, but I imagine it goes the same sort of timeline with everything. Um, but as Arab pointed out when we chatted yesterday, um, like there's no guarantee that that's everybody. Like some people are going to be higher or lower on that scale. Um, but as a general rule, whatever the frequency is, like you probably just want to avoid the same stimulus or very like close stimuli in that like 48 hour window, you know, and, and I think that's pretty consistent. Like when you sprint, like you're going every other day. So you have that 48 hour gap, you know, and then the lower threshold stuff is effectively every other day. Yeah, exactly. Um, which, and, and typically for, you know, power lifters, it'll be like, you're not squatting back-to-back days. You're not deadlifting back-to-back days. Like there is, I do often have um, like a squat bench day followed by a deadlift day. Um, I try to make that like the lower intensity deadlift day. So it maybe works out. Maybe it's a bit too much for some people. It's tough to, tough to say. Um, but I think that's something to keep in mind is that like, or are you taxing the same like structures, the same chain in the same way, similar loading, similar tempo, like all those sorts of things, um, versus the low threshold stuff. Like you say, you could probably do that anytime because it's, it's low threshold. Like you are going to make some changes, but it's not going to be like, like, I don't, I don't think you're, and that was the other thing actually with like you, you don't rely on like long distance running to develop your musculature because likely that's not enough of a stimulus to make the changes you want in your musculature. Um, so I think when we're looking at the time frames, the timelines, it's the high threshold stuff is what's going to matter more. That's going to like break down and chain and like want to remodel the fascia system a lot more break down the collagen and, and resynthesize the collagen a lot more. Um, so I think the, the low threshold stuff is going to make changes to the collagen, but I think it's going to be, or sorry, to the fascia, but I think it's going to be more through a nervous system influence rather than like a structural, it will be structural eventually, but I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it requires as much um, stress so that doing that back to back is probably fine. 
Yeah. And so that was where, like you had talked about the, the end of the last episode where it was like, okay, let's not get into that. Cause that better fits into this episode where I haven't really thought about like when I've added in that. So just, I've mentioned this before, but if anyone hasn't heard it, like in general, how you, you talked about it, a lot of the programming I do will be a high threshold day followed by a low threshold day. And then you repeat that two or three times within the week and the high threshold stuff that's going to be, yeah, we're, we're sprinting, we're accelerating, we're lifting heavy, we're moving fast, could be like very dynamic, reactive med ball throws, things like that. So higher threshold, higher demand things. And then on the other day, it's, it's lower intensity. It's, it's tempo running or, you know, circuits with movements and changing like in, in different planes, different directions, all this type of stuff. And I focused mostly on just the variability on those low threshold days, just making sure it's it, every two or three weeks, it changes over. It's a little bit different. And you had talked about, you know, the idea of like starting out slow and doing things like a very controlled tempo to sort of build up the fascial system as Thomas Myers describes in his book. And that was something I never really took into consideration. Just like, no, I'm going to move in these different planes and there's going to be a little bit of a, like low level elastic stuff, some isometric holds, some moves in different directions, but I've never thought about sort of specifically what you talked about with having some intention in terms of, it starts out very slow and controlled and then it can become more of like a natural pace. And then maybe some of them are sped up a little bit. And that's maybe an element that I can start to work into some of those things um, where, yeah, I'm going to change it up and I'm going to still have that variety in those low threshold days. But does it make sense at the start of the year with an athlete I've never worked with before to do them a little bit slower to help develop some of that I don't know, the, a fascial base. Is that the way to, you know, that, that's describe it. I don't know. And then start to, you know, do those things more dynamically or move a little bit faster, but try to take care of that slow tempo, slow cadence stuff for like they described for two, like two or three months or until you starting to see whatever changes. But that was the idea with that. Cause it's, it's, yeah, we need to have the 3D movement and the variability in there, but maybe it can be a little bit more intentional or a little more deliberate with following some of the guidelines from these, from these books and these resources. And that's something I've never tried before. And it would be very easy to implement with what I'm already doing and wouldn't be drastically, it, it wouldn't require me to completely tear up everything that I'm doing and start from scratch. Just because I read one thing in the book, it's like, no, I can make this small tweak and see, you know, over two or three months, are, are, is there something positive happening? Am I seeing something on the other days now as a benefit or, or whatever? So I think that might be, those are sort of the ideas I want to bring to the table is that if you're not doing any of this in training, find someone, whether it's an off day, whether it's the end of a higher threshold day and you end off with a circuit of some different movements and things like that, find a way to implement some of that 3D movement and variability because we need to have it in there. So we leave tools in the toolbox for the athletes. And then if you're already doing it, maybe you can do it in a more deliberate way and follow that start slow, be patient, have this, the movement be very slow and deliberate 
as you move through the different ranges. And then you can start to make it more elastic, which I think is the change I want to make now. Just out of curiosity to see what happens. Because at the end of the day, I'm still going to get from what I need. They're still going to be moving in different spaces. They're going to be loading different ranges of motion. And it's not going to be overly demanding. So I can leave it on a low threshold day. So, and again, I think that gives in such an ambiguous, ambiguous sort of where do we go? Well, either start doing the three movements if you haven't, put them somewhere. And if you are doing them, maybe try following this pattern that, you know, Thomas Michael suggests and see if it makes a positive change for what you're already doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that idea a lot. Um, I mean, yeah, like Tom Myers uh, coming from a clinical background, like is not as concerned with performance, I think, but um, even like uh, listening to uh, the Lee Taft podcast with Bill Parisi <clears throat> and then reading his book, like it's, you want all the directions for sure. Um, but he also was talking about, you want like a variety of loads and a variety of speeds as well um, for, and I guess he didn't really elaborate why, but it makes a lot of sense when I was talking with A-Rob last night. Um, it's, you need a variety of like loads and speeds to like fully flush out like the proprioceptive network kind of a way, like you have high threshold motor units and you have low threshold motor units. So if you only do high threshold stuff, those low threshold motor units, which are going to be a lot more important for that coordination and proprioception anyway, um, you just don't use them really. Um, and he would always like, whenever I go see him, he would always tell me like, you are strong. So you're good at hiding weaknesses essentially. Um, and it's really interesting when you have someone who is very like a high functioning athlete who can like sprint very fast or squat very heavy or whatever. And then you like, in some of the cases, the drills, like he was having me do, um, like I'm in a tabletop position. I put one leg back straight and then try to bring it around to the side. And like, I can barely do three reps, honestly. Like I'm just in a tabletop position swinging my leg, like it's a body weight exercise, but like I'm gassed. Like I can't control the movement. It's, it's so like jerky. I'm cramping. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't have the low threshold capacity. I've lost that proprioceptive ability. Um, so I just, I don't have the support. I don't have the the range to do these things. You know what I mean? And that's like, that's how the fascia can get like really restricted, you know? And so I, I do think that there's a lot of value in doing things slow for that purpose and doing things light and, and just yeah, a variety of loads, a variety of speeds just to fully flush out that network. Um, and more specifically, I guess, like doing what you're missing. Um, so like, I'll, I'll go through it. Cause this is, I guess how, Generally speaking, I'm thinking about it. The fascia adapts to everything. So if you want to use the fascia to make yourself better at whatever it is you want to do, you got to do that thing more. So if it's throwing, you got to throw. If it's squatting, you got to squat. If it's running, you got to run. Um, And that should probably be the majority of the stimulus you're giving it to. So um, I think in sports like powerlifting and track and swimming and, you know, like, I guess sports that are the training is the sport and the practice. And it's all kind of like, like athletic sports like that rather than team sports. Um, 
I think that's pretty standard, you know, to do that, to do it that way. Um, but if I look at old school uh, football coaches anyway, and you're crushing yourself doing like 10 by 10 in the weight room and you're a receiver, like what's the point of that? Like receivers should be running, you know, DB should be running. That's like 90% of what you do on the field. So that should be like, I would think at least 50% of the training that you do, you know, I mean, maybe not if you're young, young, like you need some strength and stability to withstand like the contact of the sport and things like that. But always going to depend, you know, if you're a pro, like you spend a lot of time at practice and anyway, so do more of the thing you want to be good at is, is one part of it. Um, so that you build up the fascial network to support that and make that more efficient and more elastic. And, and then you can do it with loads and speeds and things that will support the loads and speeds that you're going to be doing in competition. Um, and then I think you can also influence the fascia a little bit more deliberately if you don't quite have the system for it. So if I think about powerlifting, think about myself, um, I could squat and I could squat to competition standard, but I don't think I've ever probably been able to squat to the full capacity that my body should be able to. Like as long as I've been training powerlifting, I've had like restrictions in my ankle, restrictions in my hip that limited my depth, limited my coordination and like stability at the bottom and things like that. Um, and so I think that it's really hard to do if you're trying to improve performance at the same time, because that is such a more potent stimulus. If you're, if you're squatting 500 pounds one day, and then the next day you're doing bodyweight squats, your body probably doesn't care too much to adapt to the bodyweight squats, you know, but if you're <clears throat> taking the time to make those changes anyway, then if you're doing them with more intention and like a variety of speeds and maybe a variety of positions too. Like you can still squat with like a little bit of a wider stance or a narrower stance or a staggered stance. And you're getting different um, like force vectors on different joints and things like that. Um, and with the intent of like pushing the range and the intent of like really feeling at the position, like maybe expanding against your body, like some of the different um like fascia training books we're talking about, like, like uh, I read the dance section in the Robert Schleep book. Um, and like, you're trying to like make your body like longer and like you're reaching and expanding out into the movement and stuff. And it's almost like you're doing an active stretch as you're slowly moving through this posture. So thinking about it that way, um, then I think you can make adaptations in the direction that you want but again, you kind of got to give yourself the time to do it, which if you're competing is probably not going to happen. Um, and then the other aspect is doing things that you're missing. So uh, doing things that are like in the opposite direction. If you're used to working like one side of the body, then you work the other side as well. If you're used to working in one movement plane, then you work the other two planes. Um, yeah, if you're used to working at like very high loads and you do very light loads. If you high speed, then you do low speed. Generally speaking, I think that keeps you healthy. Um, and then I think there's also a lot of room for like specific variation around that competition movement. 
Um, so different types of squats, like you could do them heavy too. Like you can do a staggered stance squat with hundreds of pounds, you know, or like a wider stance squat with hundreds of pounds. And then you're still like widening that range of, of movement ability and like movement literacy. And, um, yeah, the fascial network can support a wider range of movements as well. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense too, with what you do. Like you talk about sprinting, um, or like progressing sprinting as high speed coordination, right? So you already kind of, you already do that stuff. I think like sprinting variations are creating this type of a change, I think. And you get more specific through the season. Um, but just having that, like a wider range of available movements and wider coordination range is just like, there's more proprioceptive ability. And then it, it's all still contributing to, cause it's still very similar. It's all still contributing to your performance, but then you just get like a wider, a wider range. Well, yeah. Like the example you give would be um, with the squat, for example, like if you widen your feet by, you know, a couple of inches on each side, your brain's probably not going for a different pattern. It like that has still, it's still using the squat pattern that you have. It's just now going to have to make some, some changes because it's not that different a movement versus if you were going to go run, now it's going to pick up on a completely different, um, like pattern within the brain. So, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that makes a tremendous amount of sense, I think. Yeah. And then the, the one thing, um, that is important with this is you, you want to be able to see the change or like it. So it's, you, it's important, like when, and to who you're doing this with, like, if you don't have the, if you don't have a stable movement pattern, then this is going to make you worse. Um, like too much variability will, will, uh, interfere with your ability to learn the competitive skill. Um, yeah, you don't get that consistency that you need with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And also at the same time, like if you're just learning it, there's inherent variability yes. with you trying to learn it. Exactly. Someone learning a movement has enough variability in it already. Exactly. Right. You don't so, need to create variability. Exactly. So then when you have the stable pattern, then you can introduce some variability. Um, and this is what A-Rob was saying. Like you want to be able to measure the change and see the change stick to some extent. So if you, he works with pitchers, right? Um, so one thing that he has them do is throwing with as many arm angles as possible, um, throwing, you know, from your knees, from a split, from like left foot forward, right foot forward, uh, running backwards, running forwards, running sideways, like all these different things. Um, and, you know, depending on the time of the year, you're going to be more or less specific with that stuff. Um, depending on the person, you're going to be more or less specific with that stuff and the amount of variation that you're including. Um, but if you introduce that variation and then the person's performance decreases, then either that was the wrong, like variation, like varying in the, in the wrong way, wrong direction, um, or it's just too much and they need something else. Um, but if you introduce that variation and performance goes up, really good sign. Keep doing that. That's what they needed. Yeah. So, so in that case, you would need some sort of metric, like maybe they're measuring pitch speed. Yeah. That's or... the example he gave. Um, but, and, and he's just saying like something that you can't cheat. So in the clinical setting, he uses range, um, like range of motion. So if you introduce 
like uh in that in that case it wouldn't be like a variation to the competitive movement it would be a movement that you're not used to like some sort of like he does a lot of like 90 90 drills on the floor like rolling drills and things like that um so if you introduce something like that and then range is still improved the next session or the next day really good if it's not then that's not the right drill that's not the right variation um or in and then in the competitive setting you can use a specific metric like yeah bar speed or pitch speed or like force plate data things like that well yeah you can't really cheat that like you said that's yeah and that's the key like if i get in front of the radar and i throw 90 miles an hour through 90 miles an hour yeah like, and whether that's good or bad maybe i went from being a hundred mile an hour pitcher to 90 and that's not good mm-hmm. maybe it took me from an 80 mile an hour pitcher to a 90 and that's the change we're looking for but yeah like you, you you're not gonna you, you can't you can't cheat it mm-hmm. in that sense so but yeah like i like those points and you, you the the point about the variability is interesting too right like when you're introducing a new movement which that it makes sense then with some of like the starting slower and and doing things like that because you can probably help somebody figure out exploring movements in different ranges and different patterns and whatever if you're kind of locking them or trying to keep them at that like controlled tempo to some extent right like it, it mm. actually allows you to move the pattern like to move the, in the pattern the way you want and could potentially make you more susceptible to change it, like positive changes down the road when you get introduced to variability mm-hmm. and the different directions and things like that. So, I mean, it, yeah, it all, it all ties together pretty nicely, I think. Yeah. I mean like the, the key with it, um, like you want, you need range to move. You need proprioception to control the movement. And then once you can control it, you can load it well generally um and so if you go slow then you have more opportunity to perceive what your body is doing to feel the movement um and i think you can like i don't know if i like for some people i think the tempo is good like saying like you it's a four count tempo or whatever um you know i think that would be fine but i think for a lot of people like the focus on the tempo, like counting is taking away from the focus of the movement and like feeling the movement. Um, and so if, if you're having them explore something new, I, like I, I think internal cues are a lot more helpful maybe in this, in this kind of a context. Um, I almost don't even know if I would cue them via tempo if you, or if I would just say like, try to make this rep take as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. Like, yeah, we're only going to do four of them, but I want you to like try to make from start to finish, create the biggest amount of time you can. Yeah. That, and, and I think that would be an interesting, an interesting cue. Like, um, yeah, I mean, if the, if the goal is just to go slow, then yeah, slower, the better, probably. Um, what As I'm, opposed to, like you said, yeah, like bring up the metronome and like, yeah. Cause then you're, you're just, just following like, cause then like you said, your focus is on the metronome, not even what you're doing exactly it's on yeah and that's not gonna carry over like it's not you know i could see maybe a visual stimulus being something you know 
reasonably helpful. Like if you're, if you're mirroring somebody, like really slow mirroring somebody, that could be interesting. Yes. Um, or, or, and, but then also just like directing yourself to like, okay, we're going to, we're going to take this kind of a stance and then we're just going to squat. But I want you to focus really, really like firmly on like your big toes pressing down and like maybe your other knees reaching out in this kind of a way. And then your left arms going up in this kind of a way. And like, and, and you're just like expanding your body in these different, in these different ways. And, and if it's something you've never done before, like you have to go slow to give yourself the time to focus on those things, you know? And if you, go fast then you're going to lose one and i mean and this is just it's the right kind of athlete to do that kind of a thing because a lot of athletes just aren't going to care and they're going to go fast and be like oh yeah it was perfect um and but it's not like <laughs> you know that it's not um so it it depends but i think i think for the purpose of proprioception the internal cues could make a lot of sense to try to feel different positions or even like a lot of the books um, talk about like stretching the longest fascial line that you can. So you're just like, you're just making a shape to like create tension from, yeah, like your foot up your calf, hamstring back, you know, into your neck, whatever. If you bend over in a specific way, then maybe you feel that tension. And if you bend over in a different way, you don't feel that tension. So you're trying to, you're trying to find that tension and that inherently like you focusing on the feeling in your body is creating more proprioception. Yeah. More awareness for where you are and what you're doing in space. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, giving you more control of that range, which gives you more range, which gives you more control, which then now you can load and more speed and all those sorts of things. And you're able to explore all these different movements because now you have this prior history of like, I've been over here. I've been over there. I've been down here. And it's like, Oh yeah, that reminds me of, you know, whatever, trail or exercise or whatever it was I was doing before mm -hmm. because like like we talked about the fascist system that if you it, it can lock down to what it's it, what you're giving to it mm -hmm. so like you said in the last minute you're just sitting on the couch all day it locks down to help you like sit on the couch really really well mm -hmm. so it, it starts to restrict or lock up the, the opportunity to be in a different in a different range of motion or a different space or things like that and I think what you're describing there would nicely leave the door open for you to go explore other ranges, other positions and space for your body, which maybe right now you don't need, but maybe your sport puts you in a position where all of a sudden you're used to being here, but now you're all the way out here, but you can actually get there and your body's going to be relatively comfortable being up there. Well, that's right. Like it's, you, you want to have all of the options available and even just for health too. Like, um, when I was talking to a Rob, like it, I, I had learned this before, um, from a few different people, but when you have pain, proprioception is decreased in the area. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was like the pain causes that decrease or if the decrease then causes the pain. Um, but I, I, I it's probably both ways, but I think it is a lot of that way, like you, or maybe it's not even causational. It just could be just correlational. But if you lose like the proprioception, proprioceptive ability in a certain area and you lose the range and for that ability, for that area's ability to move, um, then like that area, if it gets 
strained now doesn't have the ability to like move and control the load that's being placed on it. So whether or not actual damage is happening, the brain is sensing threat. And if you have proprioceptive ability, then there's other signals in the area saying like, no, we're good. We can control this, you know? Um, and like, I want to, there's a few people on, on Instagram that I follow and they put out a lot of good content. They're chiropractors in Toronto. Um, and they talk a lot about like desensitizing pain and like using movement to desensitize pain. Um, and it like, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I need to do more reading about like pain research and stuff to like, really yeah, where does it actually come Where does it stem from? How do we think, like, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously there is pain that comes from actual damage, but um, yeah, this it's, it's important for performance to have the range to, to be able to load the tissues. It's important to have the elasticity for speed. It's important um, to be prepared for whatever insane situation is going to happen in your sport. Um, and then it's important for health as well. Yeah. And I guess like all of those points, I think nicely highlight like just find somewhere to get that type of work into your training. It doesn't have to be like, it, it, it doesn't mean you no longer weightlift, you no longer squat or bench or sprint or do whatever you were doing before. If you're like, well, no, my program is predicated around like lifting heavy. That's fine. You don't have to get rid of lifting heavy to find a way to incorporate some of this stuff. And I, I think it's important enough that we find places to, to incorporate it. And like I said, for me, does it take away from like the big days? Well, no, I need to do those things because we're in a sport with a pretty narrow bandwidth in terms of what determines winning and losing. So we need, we need to make sure that we focus on the high intensity day. But one of the beauties of that is that then on the low threshold, low intensity days, we have the, the ability to do basically whatever, uh, as long as it's like lower threshold. And so that's where I've chosen to, to throw it in. Now, if you don't get to see your athletes four or five times a week, well, maybe it goes at the end. Maybe you come in, you lift heavy, get that stuff done and you finish off with some different movements in space or, you know, maybe you throw it in the warm up and you, you, you do whatever, like th there's endless options, but I think as long as you find a place to do it, that's, that's the most important thing. I think just yeah. find, find a home for it somewhere within what you're doing. Yeah. hundred percent. And yeah, it's a good point. Like it doesn't need to take away from what you're already doing and, like, I think everybody should have the capacity of like time in their program to fit in some high threshold stuff and some low threshold stuff. Um, if your sport is high threshold, then yeah, the low threshold stuff shouldn't really impact your performance at all outside of like keeping you healthy and, and making these adaptations we're talking about. Um, like, but I'm not worried about making the people I work with slower because we're no. doing some of this stuff because we haven't removed the bits that make you fast and keep you fast. Exactly. exactly. And those are still there. Exactly. So, and, and you can do a lot of variability and a lot of 
um, like different direction stuff fast too. Exactly. Like if you want to move fast, you can do all this stuff fast. If you want to lift heavy, you can do all this stuff lifting heavy. You know, it'll be a little bit lighter or it'll be a little bit slower, but it's still gonna, if you've hit the right stimulus or the right variation, it will help. It's not going to take away. And I think that's probably the best way to get people to like start to think about implementing it is that you don't have to remove what you're already doing. When you shouldn't. And you shouldn't. And you shouldn't. those are there for a reason. Yeah. But I think a lot of people have the misconception that because I think a lot of people think of fascial training as a thing. Mm-hmm. So if I want to do this fascial training, air quotations, that means I can no longer do my strength training or my speed training or my whatever, because I'm replacing it with fascial training. It's like, no, what's, how can you complement what you're already doing with some of this 3d movement, some of this variability. And, you know, I think that's the better way to describe it is, is complementing what you're doing because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, it doesn't need to replace that. Mm-hmm. The other stuff. And it's like you said, it shouldn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, if I don't think it should, I, I will say though, I guess, there might be a situation out there where like you've pushed your system so far in one direction that you do need to remove that stimulus in order to make the changes that you want to, which long-term will be good for your performance, but right now will be very bad for your performance. I think that situation exists. I mean, it doesn't really matter because those people aren't going to listen to what you have to say anyway. Um, so regardless, variability will be good for those people anyway. Taking this approach will be more helpful for those people anyway, I think. Yeah. So that was a lot more concrete than I thought it was going to be. Uh, that, that's okay. I think that's good. I think that's good. I think that's good. Um, move in yeah. every direction. Move all over. Find a way to put in your program. Yeah. Um, Another thing that we didn't really talk about that much, but did come up a lot in, in the fascia reading that I did was the sense of rhythm, the sense of elegance, like being, being quiet. Um, like the martial arts people talk about being quiet and then the dance people talk about being elegant and moving with rhythm. And, and even like the plyo people talk about moving with rhythm. Um, oh, it, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Um, and another thing that's very important, not the quiet part, but the elegant part and the rhythm part is music. And I think, I think music can help you with your training and like help you establish the rhythm maybe and, and things like that. Um, but that's another thing that we're going to talk about today is our music selections. Yeah. It's uh, been a quicker turnover than the other few episodes we've had. Mm-hmm. Cause this is our, is this our first time recording in back to back weeks and like two months? Yeah, it's been a while. I think it might be. Yeah, um, maybe borderline three, maybe. Um, yes, but nice. uh, don't worry, I have something. I have something. So. Oh, nice. I was yeah. gonna say, I was a bit normally I'm sort of like putting a, a band or somebody that I've been listening to out there. I've been I've been hooked on a song recently. That's rare. Yeah, so it's a bit of a, a change up, and the song is is Rasputin by Boney M. You heard that song? You definitely uh, have. It's that like the rah 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 yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's catchy. It's, oh, it's such a good tune. 
And I heard it the other day. I think I think it came up on a playlist randomly. And I just like instantly turned around and went for the bass. And I was like, I, I need to work on this. Mm. And so because I've been learning how to play it, I've been listening to it like quite a bit. But I've also been listening, which is the one by Boney M is the original. It's been remade a lot, that one, I think. It's been covered a lot. And so there is a cover by a band. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's like uh, Tarasis or Tarasis. They're a Finnish power metal band. <laughs> and they cover the song and they use instead of um, like some of the instruments that have somebody playing like, sounds like a violin or a cell, some sort of stringed instrument to get some of the same sound. Um, but it's got sort of that like orchestral power metal vibe to it. So I obviously wanted to learn that one as well. So I've been, I've been dabbling into a fair bit of like, it's all that song, but like different covers, different, different versions of that, but it's, it's such a catchy tune. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the original is still the best, but yeah. So I've been hooked on that song this week and it's been like playing in my head. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just playing in my head over and over and over again. I know all the words now. I can sing along with it. Like, yeah, so that's what I've been on to this week. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so no, I mean I'm not trying to play a song, so it's not that similar, but I was hooked on a, a bit of a song, and then that led me down another direction. I've mentioned Hollywood undead on the podcast before, I think. Um, but yeah, I was just going to pick up beer town, um, last week at some point. And then on my Spotify, I noticed Hollywood undead's got a new single. I was like, okay, all right, check that out. All right, Tom. It's called uh runaway. Um, and it's featuring, uh, Iman Beck, which I think is some sort of a DJ. I don't know. Maybe not, but the name sounds. I feel like I've heard that name before. Though I, I looked into a little bit more what that person does, and it's all kind of like, um, like EDM, not quite dubstep, but like EDM and like dance electro type yeah. stuff. Which gave that that made me think it's some sort of a DJ remix artist type person. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this song "Runaway" by Hollywood Undead and Iman Beck was really, really good, and like I like it a lot. Anyway. Um, so I recommend that for sure. And then I went back to Hollywood and dead's Spotify playlist Cause it's been a while since I've like actually like followed what they were doing. Um, and they had an album out in 2017 called five, which the album's not that good. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> but there's a few songs on it that are bangers. Um, so there's a few, I guess like bad moon. I liked a lot. Uh, ghost beach. I liked a lot. Um, and then there's a couple others that like, I fully acknowledge they're not good songs, but for whatever reason, I found them catchy. Yeah. You're like, oh, I could listen to this again. It's terrible, but I'll listen to it again. I don't know why there's, there's the song. Uh, I think riot or yeah, I, th I think it's called riot. It's about riots for sure. Um, or starting a riot. And, like I'm 99% sure they like sampled Matthew McConaughey saying, all right, all right, all right. And like, oh. that, like as part of like the bridge. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. Um, 
but anyway, yeah. So I've been listening to some of that. Like, there, it, don't listen to the whole album, but there's a few songs on there that are, are worth checking out. I would say. So, yeah, that's where I was this week. It's been our musical adventure. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, that was a good one, man. It's. Uh, I feel. I felt confident saying last week that we're that we're back. Obviously, I feel more confident saying that we're back now because we are back two in a row. We are back. Yes. Very exciting. Very exciting. And I'm, yeah, this was this was a really really fun series for me. Really really beneficial series for me. Um, I enjoyed it a lot, and I'm excited for the next one. Yeah, and I think I've hopefully fixed my audio, so it doesn't sound all echoey. So this, I think, I think you're right when we say we're we're actually back. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. All right. Uh, well, yeah, if anybody wants us to talk about anything else, um, you don't need to hit us up about cardio training because we're going to do that for sure, for sure. Um, we'll call it something different. Energy systems. Um, I can live with that. I can, I can do, I can handle that way better than if we had to say the word cardio 900 times and it's harder. <laughs> I'm not going to make it if we do. That. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, if there's anything you want us to talk about, us uh, let us know on Instagram, Speed Strength Show, Speed Strength Performance, or Braden Southern. Um, and if not, thanks for coming along, world. That was a Speed Strength Show. We will see you next time. Peace.